It's good to see you tonight. If you join me in your word uh, in the Bible, in James chapter 4, Kirk mentioned this just a moment ago while we're turning to that. Let me just uh, remind you, we've got a mission team in Aberdeen, Maryland, which is near Baltimore, a little bit south of Baltimore. And uh, Mary Ann, our daughter, is team leader. And uh, she was in college. She roomed, actually, with a pastor's wife. So they have a very deep connection. And uh, they're doing very, very well up there, by the way. He is a good guy, works really, really hard. And uh, so that's really, it's really exciting to see what God's doing uh, there. And then you'll just be reminded of other trips we have coming up. We've got uh, our senior adult mission trip that we always have in Knoxville. And we have a trip uh, soon to Paris that's uh, going on there. In other places, you know, you know about those things, but uh, that's what that is. Now, what about, what about the pastor who fakes this injury so he wants to fool with his kids on vacation <laughs> and everybody has to bring him food and everything like that? I have no sympathy for him. I think he's faking, to tell you the truth about it. But his mother believes him, so that settles it. So we, we kind of have to let it go right there. No, he fell down. Man, he, he really, he's lucky he didn't break something or whatever. And uh, I hope he's, hope he's having some fun. Uh, it's no fun when you're, when you're kind of messed up like that. Well, in the Bible tonight, we see something that's very interesting. Let me, let me see if I can just help you to remember some things about the book of James because it's been a while since we've been in this book. Uh, number one, there's no, there's no epistle, general epistle or Pauline epistle or, uh, th- that has more references, I suppose, or parallels, I should say it like that, to what Jesus said in the Gospels than James. He was obviously influenced, and you, you would know he would be, but he was obviously influenced by the things that Jesus said because he, in his own way, paraphrases or repeats these things. So when you read in, the, when you read in James, it's almost like reading in one of the Gospels with this difference. He, he's more like a prophet of the Old Testament because he doesn't mess around with sneaking up on you. He just comes right at you and says, you know, here's your problem right here. Uh, or do this, or don't do that, or stop doing this, or whatever. And so he gives, he's prescriptive, and he's, he's, uh, he's combative almost in what he says. So it's very important that we kind of remember that. But I see the influence of Jesus Christ uh, in all of these things. And, you know, Jesus, for instance, talked about not loving the world or the things of the world, you know, not putting our treasures on earth and whatever. And James is kind of talking about this tonight, uh, maybe in a little bit uh, deeper or different way. So let me read this, these first ten verses and then I, I, they, they sort of speak for themselves, but if we remember where he's coming from, I think it makes a, a big difference. So he says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, you purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Sounds like somebody's got a little bit of a burn on. And he's saying to these people, look, your behavior is totally unacceptable. The one thing we know about the Christian life is that we have a received from God life that's not uh, any other life in the world. It's God's life. And with that life comes the power to be free to do right. That's what you have freedom for. We, We have the freedom to be holy now. Before, we had no freedom whatsoever. We couldn't even understand that. We were chained up and dominated by the devil, chained up and facing death, chained up and overcome by our flesh. But in Jesus Christ, we receive the very life of God. That separation or alienation that the Bible talks about has been overcome. And so he's saying your behavior is totally unacceptable. And he says what you're doing is unacceptable because it comes from a source that will always defeat you. It will always defeat you. And so we think about the desires that we have in life. He said, you know, you're asking for stuff, and you don't get it because your desires are mixed up. There's something warring in your life. There's something going on in your life that's absolutely taking away uh, the right things and giving you the desire for the wrong things. Now, there are many things to desire in life that are good. There are many things that we desire in life that are kind of neutral. You know, you you, want to eat a certain food, or you you want to go to a certain place or whatever, and those desires are, are perfectly natural. In fact, the word that Paul uses here can mean something good or something bad. It's this desire for anything. You get thirsty, that's a desire, and, and, and you drink uh, water. Uh, you, you begin to lust after somebody else's wife, that's the same kind of desire, but it's misplaced, and it's in the wrong place. So desires can be negative or whatever, but he confronts them directly with these desires that they have. Let's look at verse 4 for just a minute because it really sets the stage for what he said. This is not the conclusion, but it's the reason. In verse 4 he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And what he's saying here is, you have the ability, I have the ability, we have the ability as Christian people to have misplaced desires no matter the fact that we've been saved, no matter the fact that we've been given God's own life through Jesus Christ, no matter the fact that we have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, we can always turn inward. We can always go back to that which we are most comfortable with. And he says, when you have friendship with the world, then you're going to have trouble with God. When you have friendship with God, then you'll always overcome the world no matter what trouble you have with it. There's an old African proverb that says, if you try to walk on both sides of the road, all you're going to do is split your pants. And that's essentially what James is saying. You're going to split your pants spiritually here. You can't have one foot in the world and say, this is my desire, this is what I lust after, long for, and on the other hand, you really desire God. This is my, we sing this, you know, this is what I desire. I want you, Lord. But he said, it doesn't always work out like that. What, What is worldliness? You ever thought about that? What, do we, what is worldliness? What is friendship with the world? That puts us in opposition with God, and we make ourselves an enemy of God. God's not our enemy. We make ourselves his enemy. That's what he's saying right here. Sometimes I think we think, well, if I do this, God's going to get mad, and he becomes my enemy, and he'll correct this and do these things. Well, the Bible says that we make ourselves that. We put ourselves in that position. Many Christians act like God has victimized them. God has been hard on them when they've done certain things. Well, friendship with the world certainly causes that to happen. Friendship with the world is to value 
now listen to this, to value or to approve or to cherish things that are indifferent and are hostile to God. Well, well, for me to cherish something that's hostile to God, I've got to know things that are not hostile to God, like holiness and, and righteousness and whatever else. But the moment we begin to cherish things that are truly, and in its end or in its uh, use or in its indulgence, are actually hostile to God, or things that God would disapprove of, we become a friend of the world. We're playing in the enemy's camp. I remember a long time ago, uh, we had friends who were in... Uh, uh, Whitwell, Tennessee, and I, we were doing a revival, and I had gone up uh, uh, night after night and uh, shared with this guy. And this this pastor had a had a rebellious son. He had an older son who just basically checked out on him. The, the other the other children were probably too small to do this, but this this young man had had gotten to be maybe in his twenties, and he just decided that his daddy was you know all wrong and whatever. Well, you know the end of the story before I tell you. So he went out there and he lived like that for a while, and then he began to fail. But his pride wouldn't let him, you know, come back or admit anything. And he said to his dad one night something that I thought was very interesting because it reminds me of this text of Scripture. He said, Dad, I don't know why you're, you're, you're mad. I don't know why you won't help me. I, I don't know why you, you know, enable me. I don't know why you won't help me live the lifestyle that I've chosen. And his dad said, well, it's very simple. He said, my, my love for you haven't changed, hasn't changed. My love and affection for you, they haven't changed whatsoever. We're just on different teams right now. You're living in something that's totally opposed to me that I cannot stand and cannot brook and will not help you in any way, shape, or form. And that's what happens when we begin to value things that God says, for instance, are passing away. Oh, I'd love to have this recognition. I'd love to have more power. I'd love to have what, whatever. And he said, let me tell you how this manifests itself. When you have a worldliness in your life, when you begin to lean into that worldliness, these things become apparent. Now let's go back to verse 1. What's the source of your quarrels and conflicts? I have to stop there and tell you what that means. When, when he says the word quarrels there, quarrels there, and then he uses the word conflicts there, that was a very, very interesting word and very precise word. He says, first of all, a quarrel is something that's an ongoing war that you can't stop. So what's the source of this ongoing war that you have within you and outside of you? that causes you to be stirred up on the inside and have all these broken relationships and whatever on the outside. And then what about these individual battles that you're going through? So the individual battles don't necessarily make the whole war, and the whole war doesn't maybe include the individual battles, but he covers all the ground. So he said, what do you think the source of this is? Do you imagine it's God? Do you imagine, can you understand that it's within you, that you have this continual problem that goes on in your life, he says, is it not the source? Is it not, he says, the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? The word pleasure is the word we get hedon from, hedonism. You know what hedonism is, the desire for pleasure. The idea that says, I want what I want, and it will gratify me, it will satisfy me, it will make me better, it will give me recognition, it will raise my standing, it will make me rich, it will make me what I have defined myself to be, the very, the very definition of worldliness. And he says the source of all the conflicts that you're experiencing in your life, in the church and outside the church, because he's writing to a church here, he says come from the fact that, 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 that you have these, this desire for whatever you want. But once again, some desires aren't bad. 
But what about the desires that are maybe in our minds not so bad, but yet they've sort of ended in conflict or created conflict or created separation and created whatever else. He said, your desire for pleasure, your, your desire for self-gratification, your desire for self-glorification, your desire for self-recognition, your, your desire, that, that insatiable appetite for self-satisfaction, to get whatever you've de determined and defined that your life needs really creates the conflict that breaks everything else apart in your life. The problem with the desire for self-gratification or self-glorification or self-satisfaction is that instead of giving you that, it actually destroys the person who desires it. That's what he's saying here. He said, first of all, it, it destroys your relationship with God, and we'll see that. Then it destroys your relationship with others, but ultimately it destroys who God meant for you to be. Well, you know what? That's a dangerous place to be in. But it's also a place that's hard to admit that we are in. I don't know about you, but I think all my wants and wishes and desires are entirely proper. I think they're entirely good. I think there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. There's nothing more deceitful than the heart, is it? There's no, nobody can fool them, uh, you like you can. Nobody can fool me like I can. Look, I, I didn't mean, I, I just wanted, this is what I... But this desire for me to be in charge and have everything that I want to be given to me is something that actually makes you and me an enemy of God. These prolonged quarrels, these instant conflicts, these things that just don't work out as we try to pursue them and try to get them. Then he goes on to say, you ask, but you don't get anything. Notice what he says about this. He says, you lust and do not have in verse 2. You commit murder. I don't think he means truly committing murder. I'm going to explain this in just a minute. He says, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you ask in the wrong way. Now what he says, first of all, he says, when you have these desires that are displaced desires or unholy desires, you become envious of the people who have what you want. Envy is a terrible thing. Coveting is a terrible thing. It's one of the top ten commandments, right? It's one of the bad things when you look at somebody and you say, I don't know why they have that. I want that. And we often mask that to say, well, I'm pretty satisfied with what I am. This is just ambition to do better for me and my family and whatever else. When the truth of the matter is, you don't want them to have it, you want it. We were talking about this in our Sunday school class this morning. Envy and jealousy are two sides of the same coin. Envy is when I want what you have, and jealousy is when I guard what I have and I'm, I don't want to give it to you. I'm jealous for that. And he says, look at these conflicts that you're having. He said, you lust, you really want this, you have, so you commit murder. You know what he's saying? You get rid of anything and everything, including people that are standing in your way. I'm just going to get rid of it. I'm going to get rid of that. I'll get rid of anybody. I'll get rid of my family. I'll get rid of my friends. I'll get rid of my church. I'll get rid of anybody or anything that stands in my way because lust burns and it begins. You know, every sin has passion behind it. And the passion doesn't stop. It increases. When you can't have what you want, that passion just increases and increases until it's repented of and done away with. So he says you, you tend to get rid of these things in your life. 
and these people in your life that stand in the way that you've determined to be obstacles to getting what you want, but you're also dismissing God in the process. That's the underlying conviction here. That's where he's going to get to. You better get, you better get a hold of yourself, he's going to say, and get back and submit yourself to God. Because the worst thing about envy is you're really saying, I want what I don't have, and God hasn't given it to me, and he won't give it to me, and it's not fair. So not only am I destroying people and destroying myself, I'm destroying this sacred relationship that I have with God. Envy and coveting is idolatry, according to Scripture. It's replacing God and his great provision and sovereignty in our lives with the things we have deemed more necessary than what he's provided. It's a dangerous place to be in. He goes on to say something else. He said, you're envious, can obtain you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask in the wrong way. So I'm envious and I begin to fight and quarrel. There's something that stirs within me. I'll tell you how it is when you're an envious person. You can always kind of spot an envious person. They don't, they don't necessarily, I know I don't, don't you look at me like you've never been envious. So we're just all in the same room here, right? So when we get envious, we don't typically say, I sure would like what Dan has. Dan and Emily have something, and I wish I had their house. I wish I had their life. It's just not fair. And we don't say it like that. That's too, that's too, what we do is we, what, criticize, gossip, demean. Well, they think there's something there. I'll tell you what. Uh, those people over there, they think they have something. They're no better than no better I am. That's just envy speaking. Well, I, I tell you one thing. I, I wouldn't have what they do. The living the life that they love, I tell you, that's just wrong. That's envy speaking. That judgmental attitude, that critical attitude of saying, God, why are you giving it to them when I need it and want it and desire it and even deserve it even more? Kind of amazing, isn't it? He said, so you, you start quarreling and fighting. And he's talking to a church, and he says, this envy and what you want to have is causing the church to splinter because you can't be in good relationship as long as you've got a foot in the world and a heart of envy and pursuing. So he says, now you spiritualize it. So you start to pray for these things. And we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. Think about, think about what he says here a minute. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motive. So you may spend it, and there's our word again, on your pleasure. The, the, the hedonism in our lives and the desire for ease and pleasure overtakes us, and even when we pray, it's affecting our spiritual life. There's a word for this. We don't use it much because I don't always understand it, but it's called vitiating prayer. It means it's making it null and void. It's destroying prayer. It destroys your communication with God who's ready to bless us with everything he deems necessary for our lives. He blesses us richly and lavishly, but only according to his will. And yet we are envious and we grind on that and we, God's not fair and we ask and we wonder why we don't receive. He says, you adulteresses. Wow, that sounds like a prophet. You know what he's saying. He's saying, what you're doing is akin to a man who's married or a woman who's married, and they say in their own mind, you know what, uh, I'm married, and I really love my wife. Here's a man speaking. I really love my wife, but I'm going to really pursue a friendship with this gal at work. Now, I understand my motives are pure, and I want my wife to understand that, 
but I'm going to really pursue this friendship with this gal of work. She's just so interesting. Brings me so much joy. Or a woman says, you know, there's just this, this guy I know, and, and uh, you know, my husband's not interested in these kind of things, but I'm interested in whatever, and he's interested in that, and, and we're just friends. I'm going to hang out after work. Oh, sure, we have children at home, and there needs to be done. I'm not really doing anything but what I need to do in my life. That's what we do spiritually. He said, that's what you do with God. You say, you know, I love the Lord. I pray. I, you know, I, I'm in church, obviously, and, and they're just things. But, but really, these people, I've heard it many, many times. People say, you know, I have, I have more friendship with people who are lost than I do with Christian people. Yeah, and that's the problem. I'm critical of Christian people. I'm critical because it seems like when I get around that, I feel a little funny. I feel a little convicted. So it's just easier to hang around people who are lost because we kind of speak the same language. We kind of have the same desires. We're all going in the same place. And, well, those people, oh, the preacher, he's always on you, always asking for money. You know, he's always doing something and harping on sin and whatever else. I'm just not comfortable with that. That's exactly the person that James is talking about. It's so easy to get to that place. Haven't you prayed over and over again for something that God didn't give you? We're going to address that just in a moment. But of course we have. And sometimes it hadn't been bad things that we prayed for, somebody to be healed, some provision that you needed in your life, a job, a spouse. Sure you have. But we never thought to check at the door of the prayer meeting place, our hearts to see if we indeed wanted it just because we wanted it or it was really something that God was ready to give. Unholy, ineffective praying, making self-gratification an excuse for spiritual desires. Spiritual desires. Here's the saddest part of it all. When we live out of our heart like that, we dishonor God. He said, if you wish to be a friend of the world, you're going to have hostility. You're going to become an enemy of God. Look in verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. He's jealous about that. It dishonors God. You say, well, what are you talking about, preacher? Well, here's the thing. God created us, and once he created you and me, he determined before he created us that he would sustain us. He'd provide for us. He'd give us a purpose in life that would be freedom and joy to us no matter what the circumstances were, and give him glory. That's how he created you and why he created you. He gave you the certain personality and the time to live. He gave you certain giftedness so that joining yourself to him and his purposes and him giving you his life in Jesus Christ, you could live out your life and in such a way that it would benefit everybody that you were ever around. You'd be joined up to Christ, and then you'd be joined up to Christ in the church, and the expression of your life and your gifts would build other people's lives and encourage them and, and do great things for them as they would do for you. This is God's plan when Jesus was dying on the cross. And, and, and the sins that put Jesus on the cross, and the heart, and the, and the selfishness, and the self-glorification, and gratification, 
and the desire to be God ourselves, put Jesus on the cross. Now, can you imagine that he would save us so we could go and do that again? It doesn't make any sense. It dishonors God. It says the cross wasn't really that important. It says the the death of Christ was really nothing but good for us because we get heaven, but it has no effect on our lives. And he says, you become an enemy of God. Enemy of God. I'll tell you the picture that he gives right here. You you know, he talks about this. I believe it's in Proverbs, what, 3, something, 34, where he talks about that that God resists the proud. You ever thought about what that means? That God re- it's very few scriptures that ever says God gets up off his throne and says, I'm going to take care of that. Most of the time, he'll let you go into your sin. Most of the time, he'll give you over to your depraved mind. He gives you freedom, but you become proud and dishonor him. And that's another dimension whatsoever. It says this, that when we become like that and we become selfish, and we're having conflict in the church that we're causing, and we're gossiping, and we're lusting, and doing all those things, and basically saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. You're not giving me what I need. I know more than you. It said God gets up, and he starts to put on his battle dress. That's exactly the picture here. He puts on battle dress and says, I'm going to go and take care of that. I am not putting up with pride. I'm not putting up with people who long to be God, who think they're God, who think they know more than I do. He fights the proud. Well, who wants to fight with God? So he says, no wonder you're unhappy. No wonder you have these broken relationships. No wonder you're struggling. God's fighting you. You're not going to win. He's fighting you. So what's the alternative? What's the answer to that? He said, well, he'll give you grace. He's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the honorable. So he says, do these things. First of all, submit to God. Just to say this, I don't know what I'm doing. You, you know far more about my life than I do. And Lord, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you teach, that's what I'm going to believe. Wherever you lead, that's where I'm going to go. Whatever you ask, that's what I'm going to give. It doesn't start with us. The solution is never within. It's always without. So submit to God. That word means put yourself up under them, under the authority of God. It's an act of faith, right? And then he says resist the devil because this is where this is coming from. Start fighting him. Quit fighting God. Suit up, he says in Ephesians, put on the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness. Gird yourself with the truth. Shed your feet. Put shoes on, gospel shoes on, and go fight the devil. Stand firm and fight him. Quit fighting God by being selfish and self-directed and lusting and envying and all. You're just fighting God whenever you do that, he says. When you do, the devil will flee from you. So the path gets clear. Instead of being confused and in conflict, all of a sudden that abates, that dissipates. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse yourselves. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's already talked about a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Once again, the African proverb, he's just going to split your pants spiritually. Quit being double-minded. Take control of your life here for a minute. Realize who you are. Own this. And go to God, cleanse yourself. Say, God, I repent. This is a call for repentance, he says. Be miserable and mourn until it happens. So you get right. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then he does the most remarkable thing. He doesn't slap us. He doesn't beat us up. He doesn't tell us we're stupid. He exalts us. The very thing we desire, 
we get. But we are exalted so that he's exalted. We are lifted up so he's praised. Our lives take a turn and people say, God did that. This is a wonderful thing. Repentance is a wonderful thing. It keeps us from the destructive past. And when we go, we get what we've desired but never knew how to get. Instead of conflicts and fightings and whatever, God begins to just pick us up, and then he lifts us up and exalts us. You know, he told Joshua that. I know Jeff's been dealing with Joshua, but he said in chapter 3 of Joshua, he told Joshua, he said, now look, everything I did for Moses, I'm going to do for you. I'm going to exalt you. These people are going to think about you like they think, took, think of, thought about my servant Moses. And Moses was the most humble man in Scripture, the Bible says. That's the words of Jesus, right? So this exaltation, this desire to live big and to be wonderful and to be that is given to us when we come in humility under the Lord. That misplaced desire that destroys us has been replaced with a desire for God that ultimately exalts us. That's what it says. That's a promise. It just says this. If you humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, He will exalt you. Wow! How wonderful that is. Well, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Question number one. Are my desires pure, necessary, kingdom-focused in building? Are they selfish? Are they God-honoring? Where are the conflicts in my life? What conflicts do you have in your life? Have I caused them? If I have a conflict because I'm righteous, we can rejoice in that. That's what James says. When you go through various trials, you can rejoice at that. You can't choose your cho- you can't always choose your conflicts, but you can sure create them. You, you can't always choose your hard times, but you absolutely can create them. Are, are you creating your own hardships? Look, there's enough trouble in life without creating any more. So he says that. We ask ourselves, have I caused them? Am I critical of other believers and churches and things that God's doing? Do I gossip about people? That's envy. Do I secretly wish they didn't have what I wanted and I had it? Am I critical of other believers? Am I critical of other leaders who try to lead me to the truth? Is envy really a part of my life? We ought to ask that question. Or maybe we could frame it this way. What part of my life does envy play? Because we probably all have a bit of it, if not a lot of it. How is envy truly affecting my life? It's an important question. Where do my prayers originate? It's a very important question. You know the prayers that get answered? are not just the ones that go to heaven. They're the ones that come from heaven first. It's when Jesus said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's the heart of the disciples that said, Lord, teach us to pray. You may think you know how to pray. Only God knows how to pray. Think about what I just said. Only God knows how to pray. He hears, receives, and he gives. He knows what works. He knows what's proper. So don't you think it would be good before we prayed to say, Lord, now, now I've got certain things that I have on my heart and mind, but if any of these things are not proper, you take them away. You show me. Lord, you tell me what to pray for today. Tell me where you're moving. Tell me what you want 
in my life and out of my life? What do you want for my children? What do you want for my spouse? What do you want for my life? Rather than just bombasting heaven with all these things we've convinced ourselves we need or somehow are right. Am I at war with God over anything in my life? Is God fighting you over anything in your life right now? Their misery until the war is over. Do I, do I feel his presence? Do I see where he's leading and moving? And when I don't see where he's leading and moving, do I have this in, internal peace that God is on his throne and I'm okay? Or am I always telling God in other ways, even if I'm talking to people or just thinking these thoughts, that he just doesn't know what he's doing? Don't become an enemy of God by assuming you know more than him. We can't do that. Here's the big question. Oh, it's a, it's a painful one for me. Am I really just fooling myself? Am I believing any lies? Am I fooling myself by believing that I can't change or I really need that or those people don't deserve this or whatever? You know, nobody can fool you like you. Nobody can fool me like me. Am I, am I just really fooling myself? Am I willing to repent if God shows me something that's it's not proper in my life. Will I submit to him? People don't like the word submit. You say, I'm not submitting to my husband. I'm not submitting to my boss. Well, you're not submitting to God. You, you can't be boss and God at the same time forever. You're always either leading somebody or following somebody, and you can't lead very well until you learn to follow. Are you submitting to the Lord's will for your life? I can tell you the truth, that you can submit to the Lord's will for your life and initially be very, very, even bitterly disappointed because you thought, this is what I wanted, and God said, but I didn't create you for this. I created you for this. It can even be bitter before you come around to say, okay, well, this is it. You want me to do this? You want me to serve here? That's fine. I will do it. Will I be willing to cleanse my ways and repent. Let God wash me from all these things that I have. Can I truly desire to offer to God every day of my life a pure heart? Jesus said, let me tell you something about this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Is that really my desire? We sing about it, but is it truly a desire? <laughs> I'd like to say in my life, oh, yes. Let me just be honest with you. Sometimes, but most of the time, I have a pretty good idea of what God ought to be doing. And I tell him. Oh, it's couched in prayer, but I tell him, Lord, I, you, we need chirping, spiritual chirping, and we need to be listening. Listening. And God's will comes from heaven in prayer. And we offer that back to him. Great things begin to happen. Get rid of those conflicts. Let's be pure and holy before the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for this word. It's so refreshing and wonderful. It's convicting, though, Lord. Oh, my goodness, it's convicting. And it's just easy to hear a word like this and think about everybody we know that needs this and forget that it's for us tonight. Lord, show us if we have envy or self-glorification or self-satisfaction or whatever, self-whatever. 
show us our selfishness if, if truly if it's there, our envy if truly if it's there, our desire for pleasures that you would never grant because, they, because you know they destroy us. Father, show us the truth about our lives. Let us not fool ourselves and fool our hearts any longer, but let us be your people. We submit to you tonight. We repent tonight. We come humbly before you. We don't want to be at war with you. Oh, God, take off that battle dress. Sit back down and let us come before you. And just be as children to you, to listen to what you say, to want what you want, desire what you want, to love what you love, and to do what you will. And this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a great song. Everybody's got a dream in this place. I, I don't know many people that don't have a dream. But do you have God's vision for your life? Have you found what God envisions for your life right now? That's our song tonight. We're going to stand and sing. You can pray at these altars. I'll pray with you, whatever. But let's sing this song as if we're listening to a man who wrote it, maybe a woman, I don't know, who cries out to say, God, you be this vision of mine so that I can see it and live it. Let's stand together and sing this great song.